Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. We were there last week, and we'll cover the second half this week. Last week, we continued to march forward as we are covering a few of the songs and psalms of ascent. As God gave the people of God in the Old Testament Israel, he gave them these songs to sing on the way to Jerusalem as a way to remember what God had done and what he will continue to do. And as we march forward with them last week, we looked at two short points that covered the entire length of the sermon, the state of man and the offer of God. The state of man is separate in sin until we receive the offer of God, pardon from sin that God made for us through the blood of Jesus that we just sung about. That also comes with the responsibility of reverence. And those are the things that we covered last week. And this week in the scripture, we will look at four more verses that cover two more points. And those points being the hope of man and the love of God. The hope of man and the love of God. Verse 5 of chapter 130 of Psalms. The Bible says, I am counting on the Lord. Yes, I am counting on him. I have put my hope in his word. I long for the Lord, verse 6. I long for the Lord more than centuries long for the dawn. Yes, more than centuries long for the dawn. This is God's word for us. And this is the man of God writing under the inspiration of God repetitively to tell us how he longs for God and how he is counting on the Lord. I want to ask you as we get into this today, if, if someone asked you about your religious background, if someone was interviewing you about the religious or spiritual heritage that you have, what would you tell them? What would your answer be to that question of your religious or spiritual background? Because often the response that we give is driven by what ministry or what church we are associated with. If you are from around here, one might say, well, the answer to that question is, I grew up Baptist, or I grew up Church of Christ, or I grew up Methodist. And some of you may say with the response, I grew up Catholic, or maybe your response would even say, you know what, we really didn't go to church that much growing up. And so the, we add, the answer that, to those questions sometimes when we're asked about our religious background has more to do with our religious affiliations than it does our individual experiences. And with the associations in mind, I want you to notice, again, the scripture and the object of the psalmist's spiritual life. He is speaking personally about the Lord. He says, I am counting on the Lord. I have put my hope in his word. I long for him. So our spiritual lives have a lot to do with congregations. They have a lot to do with the spiritual ministries that we are associated with and who we belong to. But you can see here from the scripture, while those are important as we look across the word of God, the denominations and the congregations, we belong to the object of our faith, who is Jesus. So yes, it's important to what church you belong to, what ministry you're connected to, and those things are absolutely essential, but they are not the object of our faith. I am more than good with being a Southern Baptist pastor. I'm proud of the little Methodist church that I grew up in. One time I was honored to speak in the Church of Christ. True story. And I'm thankful for those associations, I'm thankful for those denominations, I'm thankful for those buildings, and all the folks in those buildings. But I am counting on the Lord. I have put my hope in His Word. I am longing for Him. The blood of Jesus speaks for me. It is a personal experience that I am bringing to a corporate gathering. The psalm is no endorsement of the denomination. 
The psalm is not an expression of a religious affiliation. It is a personal experience, and it is a personal expression of one poor soul to the Lord. So with that laid as a foundation, let me ask you, have you personally recognized your need for God? You personally, with your name on it, does the blood of Jesus speak for you? I remember talking to a guy that grew up in church. He's been in and out of different churches about my age, late 30s. It's getting later in the 30s for me. But I, I, I remember asking him one day, I said, man, I hear what you're saying. You've been in and out of different churches. I said, but has any of this ever been personal for you? Has it always been corporate? Has it always been associated? Or has it been personal where you are putting your faith and walking in your faith with God? Have you called upon the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved? Is it personal to you? Do you understand that the truth of your sin keeps you separate from the health and the hope and the holiness of God? It's your sin that creates a barrier between you and God. Have you called upon the name of the Lord Jesus in faith? Have you cried out to God? Have you, from a place of despair or from a place of delight, have you called on the Lord to save you? Have you called on the Lord to take you over? Church, hear that part. Not just Jesus is Savior, but Jesus is Lord. What, what question did we ask when we put him in the baptism water? Have you called upon the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved? Because that's what the scripture says. When we get saved, we are calling on Jesus, not just to forgive us of our sins, but to take us over. That is real salvation. And where do you stand personally with this? Ask those questions because when you do, all of this that could fill up a, a logistics form about religious background, all of these things that we can answer so that we can check the box and move on. When we shift from what we are associated with to a personal experience, it moves from that denomination and association to a relationship with one that we are completely and totally reliant upon. It's me who believes in God who saves me and puts me in a church family. And I'm counting on him. And I'm reading his word. Yes, I'm counting on him. Now the scripture when it says I'm counting on the Lord, yours may say I wait for the Lord. That means I'm expecting the Lord. That is the translation in the scripture. Now as we talk about what that means in verse 5, to count on the Lord. And to count on him and to put his hope in his word, your hope in his word, and to long for the Lord, to wait for the Lord, to expect the Lord. As we talk about that, I'm going to shoot you straight this morning. Some are waiting on God to do something good for them. Some are waiting on God to deliver them. Some are waiting on God in this season of your life to show up and show out in a big way to deliver you from where you are and to get you to where you want to be. That likely speaks for a number of people in the room this morning. And with that said, while I do believe that God's relief and refreshment, God's provision and position absolutely comes in seasons and sometimes even in small packages while we are here, the full realization of God's blessing, restoration, and forgiveness will be grasped completely in eternity. Now, that's the part a lot of times we don't want to hear about. Because we are living so much in our feelings in the right now. But this is why the Bible in Colossians says for us to think about heaven. 
Christians, this is what the Bible says for us. If we are, are now in this place of waiting or expecting, and it's hard, and we're calling for rescue or restoration, or we need God to do something. Has anybody ever prayed that, or is it just me? God, we need you to do something. If we're in this place where we are calling out, crying out in this season of expectation and waiting, Christians, the Bible takes your attention upward to heaven. And the Bible says, think about heaven in Colossians chapter 3. Not the things of this earth, because our new life is not here, but hidden with Christ in God. And then the Bible goes on to say, but one day, one day, there's going to be a revealing of God's glory, and that will be a realization of our good. Completely in heaven. Lord, would you just preside over this service? Spirit of God, would you make conviction strong and truth plain? Lord, that we would leave differently than when we came in. God, if we've not given you one second of heart attention yet, I pray that that happens now. And Lord, you would have our full attention as we need you in this life. And thank you, Lord, for the life you've given us to come in Jesus' name. Amen. Upon that day in glory, as our mind and our eyes go to heaven, there'll be no more waiting area. Your table will be ready. You will be sitting down with the King of Kings in the presence of God, and all of the questions that you had will be answered. All of the stress that you've had will be relieved. All of the worry that you've had will be no more. You will be in the presence of God who makes everything new and everything right. And as one author said, as a compass points north, the believer's entire disposition should point itself towards the things of heaven. So if you are waiting on a better day, if you come today hoping to hear about a better day, I've got one to tell you about, but it is fully realized in heaven. Because sometimes we are waiting on this, this better day for God to give us and give us right now. And I should tell you that it is the will of God to save you, to sanctify you, to sustain you, and to send you. But often, what we want to hear is that God is going to make our life like a Jimmy Buffett song. Cheeseburger in paradise. Heaven on earth with an onion slice, I believe is how it goes. Like, let's just be honest. That's what we want God to do. We want God to tell us that the rest of our days is going to be just like that sweet movie you watched last night. Credits are going to roll and it's going to be beautiful. But the truth is, is that when you read the scripture, you will see that there will be suffering. There will be persecution. There will be times where it is troublesome and tough because we live in a world that is cursed by sin. But I know a God that has overcome it. And God is eternal. So that's where we are placing our hope in an eternal God. And do you remember where the psalmist is writing from? Look back at verse 1 in chapter 30. From the depths of despair, O Lord, I call for your help. See, the psalmist lives with this expectation of an eternal God. And what I want you to see today is the actual reality of his waiting. How he was counting on the Lord. And, and he was counting on the Lord, not by an ocean with a fruit drink in his hand. No, he was counting on the Lord and expecting the Lord and waiting on the Lord from where? From the depths of despair, he's right. And this is what he says in Psalm chapter 130, verse 5. I have put my hope in his word. Now let's talk about that for a little bit. How did the psalmist know as he's writing in Psalm chapter 130, how does he know that God can be counted on? How does he know that? How does he trust that God 
can be reached? How does he even know that he could bow his head and call upon the Lord in faith and God would know him? How, how does he know those things? How did he know that all that time ago that God would forgive him of his sin and that the offer from God would be pardoned for sin? I mean, to wait on the Lord is to know that the Lord's going to show up. So how does, the, how does the psalmist know to expect the Lord because he will come through? If you have ever served in student ministry in your life, or if you have worked in the school system of any kind and you have worked with teenagers, middle schoolers, then you have learned to ask this question, and you've probably said it many times. Y'all got a ride coming? Anybody can testify to that? You got a ride coming? Because when you get back from a camp, or when you get back from a conference, or even at the church, sometimes kids are waiting around, people are filing out. If you're at school, the ball game's over, the popcorn's been swept up, you got kids just standing there trying to kick your rocks like this. And that educator asks, you got a ride coming? And the answer to their question is based off of what they've been told or not. I remember we were uh, in a different place, different time, different ministry. We got back in a great week at student camp. We get back, everybody gets into a car, everybody leaves, my wife and I are back, and there's one young kid that's just waiting, all the stuff there beside him. He said, man, you got a ride coming? He said, I don't know. I said, what do you mean? You don't know. Have you talked to your mom? I can't get a hold of her. You can't get a hold of her? No, sir. He said, the truth is, I don't, I don't know if she's coming because I hadn't heard from her. He said, uh, I don't even know if she's home. So that young man came and stayed in our home that night, and then the next day we took him home to where his mother was. You see, he was waiting based on a word, and there wasn't one. Christians, you are not waiting and expecting God, and God not told you something. Even here, when he says in verse 5, the psalmist says, I have put my hope in his word. That means that the psalmist is not putting his hope in the existence of God. He is putting his hope in the revelation of God. And what God has said, God told him, I'm coming to get you. No need for you to look for another ride. God has said he would forgive. God has said he would redeem. God has said God told you who he is. The psalmist said, because of that, I have put my hope in his word. He would have known the scriptures just like we do. Now, he wouldn't have had the full canon of scripture, but he would have had at least the first five books of the Bible, at least. And he would have seen the system of sacrifice which God had provided for sin. He would have seen the characters of God, character of God, as he had led his people out of slavery, away from the hand of an evil ruler, given them provision. He would have known that. He would have known the character of God from Exodus 34, 6. The psalmist must have read that the Lord described himself with Moses. He said, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and I am filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. You see, the psalmist is not hoping that because God exists, he'll do something good in the future. He is trusting in what he has said about himself and what he has read in his word. Unfailing love of God may mean 
that there will be in our lives a season of waiting, but it does not mean that God will leave you in the depths of despair. If God says he's going to pick you up and take you home, that's exactly what he's going to do. So you have to trust in that, that you are trusting in an eternal God with a bigger picture and better place than this old world, and we are just foreigners waiting on God to pick us up. So before the psalmist here is that choice. Even after I've said this today, you leave and you go home with your feelings. And the psalmist is left with this choice. We can trust our feelings today, or we can trust the promises of God for the future. So if you are aligned with God's word, you shouldn't give up because God's word is eternal. Just for a second, I want us to think about and compare the feelings that we have and the word of God that God has given. God's word has survived all this time. There were times in the Old Testament when God's word would be buried up underneath something. The people of God would dig it up, find it. It endured again. They'd read it. And the people would start, under conviction, start waiting and crying on God for forgiveness. You know why? Because the word of God stands forever. Forever. Our feelings change with the next text message we get. Straight up. Some of you right now, you came into church one way, you looked at somebody, you thought that they should look at you differently, now Satan's playing with your mind, all of a sudden your feelings have got you in every word yet. That's how quickly our feelings change. Word of God's not going to change. When I look in here, it's going to be the same every single time. Why? Because it's an eternal word written by the heart and hand of God. So it will not change. God's word is eternal as feelings come and go, seasons change, relationships even change. Did y'all hear that? Relationships even fall. And it causes you to be in the season of waiting and expecting. But God's word will not fail you nor cause you to fall. Not his word, it stands. So if you are aligned with the word of God, do not give up. Wait with the word. Scripture says, you have listened to this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Make a note, underline, highlight, the Bible says you have been born again. You've been born from above, not to a life that will quickly end. Your life is not over if you are waiting on God to come through. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. That is what we are standing on. It goes on to say that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord does what? Stands forever. It stands forever, which means your hope stands forever. It means your forgiveness stands forever. It means the wisdom that God provides stands forever. It means the truth of God stands forever. This grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord, the word that says I'll never leave you nor forsake you, the word that says I will give you rest, the word that says God can be trusted to keep his promises, the word that says he will restore, support, strengthen you, and place you on a firm foundation, the word that says yes, I am coming soon, that word from God is forever. So yes, count on the Lord today. He says in verse 6, I long for the Lord more than centuries long for the dawn. Yes, more than centuries long for the dawn. What's repeated is important. This is a metaphor. This is a sentry, a night watchman. A night watchman, y'all listen to this. A night watchman on the job waits for the joy of morning. But while he waits, he serves his purpose till the sun comes up. He serves until the sun comes up. Some of us are waiting to get involved and do more for the Lord when our situation changes. 
We're to be faithful as I see it, whether the time is favorable or not. Preach the word of God in season, out of season, when the time is favorable or when it's not favorable. Some of us are waiting to do for God until God does for us. Are you kidding me? Are we kidding? God has, has given us life. God has provided for our eternal life through the blood of his son. And we're waiting on God to come through before we do something for his organization that he created. Who in the world do we think we are? says in verse 6, I long for the Lord more than centuries long for the dawn. Yes, more than centuries long for the dawn. That means a night watchman who is employed. He don't quit. A night watchman on the job waits for the joy of morning, serves till the sun comes up. The night brings with it uncertainty. The night brings with it the uncertainties of what's to come. The night brings with it the pressures of what to deal with that you can't see and don't know full well. The night also brings about the responsibility to carry out the task that's assigned to you by the command. During the night, until the morning comes, Christian, if your life feels like you are waiting in the night, you should know this. There's nothing you can do to make the sun come up any faster. For that reason, because that's not within your responsibility and it's not within your power, your responsibility, my responsibility, is to wait and wait well. So get in there and be tough and don't give up. For we'll reap a harvest of blessing at the appropriate time. That is the teaching. And yes, but how we say, we say, man, that sounds good. I hear what you're saying. That don't make me feel real great, but I receive it. But I got a question. How do we do that? How do we wait when we wait well when we are waiting on God to come through? When we're waiting on God to send us a spouse, when we're waiting on God to answer our prayer for a loved one, when we are waiting on God to show us what the future looks like, and we're waiting on God to deliver us from the season, how do we do that? This week, as we're studying Psalm 130, I kept going back to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, written about the character of God, reflected in His Word, the character of God reflected in His standards, written out of a heart of one who is in circumstance, desiring to wait on the Lord and wait well. Psalm 119, verse 81 says, I am worn out. Now listen to this if you're thinking to yourself, like, it's no Jimmy Buffett song, it's just a struggle over here. Listen to what Psalm 119, 81 says. I am worn out waiting for your rescue. Worn out. I'm give, as, as I've heard people say before, I'm give slap out. You know what that is? Tired. I'm tired waiting on your rescue. But, notice the change of direction, but I put my hope in your word. Y'all, let me tell you something. Christians, if you're going to put your hope in God's word, you're going to have to know what it says. And I'm not talking about sweeping through Facebook or Instagram and somebody's posted a favorite verse of theirs. You need to saturate yourself in the Word of God. Know what it says in context. Be faithful to it. If we're putting our hope in His Word, we know what the Word says. How do we wait and how do we wait well? Again, we put our hope, we stand, we start our day, we finish our day, we move through the day on God's promises, on God's revelation. God's Word, y'all, is a gift to our heart and mind. It is a gift to see you through while you are waiting. What do you do in the waiting room at the doctor's office? You sit there, cross your legs, you get a magazine, you get a Gideon Bible, you get a book, you get your phones, and you start what? You start reading while you're waiting. That is truly a teaching point of the day. God's Word is a gift. 
Start reading while you're waiting. And I want you to know as we think about the structure of the Psalms, the Psalms were written as songs. S-O-N-G-S. Songs. These were to be sung. Songs have a way of, of connecting to our heart. Songs have a way of staying in our mind. They affect the way that we feel, do they not? That's a lot of times when we leave church while we feel better because we have lifted up our voices, the truth of God's word, in song. And so this helps us. If you, help, if you think about the way in which the, the psalms are written and know that they are songs to be sung, think about how that applies to your life. Think about it. What do we do at Christmas? At Christmas, we play songs on the loop dedicated to what it makes us feel like when we were kids and getting together. It makes us feel joyful. Makes us feel good, right? Some of y'all hate Christmas music. Don't speak to that one. What do we do when we go to the beach? When we go to the beach, what do we do? We create a playlist. Now, for those of you that were the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, that's a mixtape or CD. And you create one of those. Why? And, and, and what are we taking with us to the beach? We're taking songs that lift our spirits and make us feel good. See, songs have a way of doing that. Even at, even at baseball game, right? Baseball games, we're having a good time. We want to stay having a good time. So the next thing you know, somebody hits the music and it's, Sweet Caroline, come on. Right? I really had my reservations as to whether or not y'all were going to do that. Some of you that are super spiritual are like, there's no place for that in here. Just hold on because I'm going to make a point out of it. And some of y'all are like, what is that? Like, I don't even know what you're saying. But did you, even now, did you see what happened after we did that? Now we're all smiling, man. We're at a baseball game. Hot dogs and all this stuff. You see, that's what music does. Music stokes the fires of our feelings with songs. Now, don't miss this point. Music stokes the fire of our feelings with songs. But sometimes our feelings don't need to be stoked. They need to be stifled. And because of that, the Word of God will give you the truth over and above how you feel. The Word of God will give you peace. This is where it's crazy. The Word of God will even give you delight in your despair. Even when it's a struggle, the Word of God will see you through. Whether you sing it in a song, or you read it and memorize it, write it down, or you've got it on the walls of your home. The Word of God will give you the light even when there's despair. Psalm 119, 174 says, O Lord, I have longed for your rescue, and your instructions are my delight. Your Word is, is the happiness that I've got today to see me through to the next day. It's your Word. I have sung it like a song. I've memorized it. One pastor said this, your life is always moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts. Man, I find that to be true because it, most of the time, our case is that it's moving in the direction of our feelings and our desires because that's the strongest thoughts that we have. But God's word is a nightlight. God's word will change the way that we see the world. It'll light up our darkness. It will be a gift to our fears and our feelings to bring us back to center and what is true and what is right and what is real. So what do we do? Y'all memorize it, sing it, listen to it, treasure it as God's promise of the morning until the promises become realizations. Trust and stand and hope in God's word. Amen? Finally is the love of God. Verses 7 and 8. 
Verse 7 says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is unfailing love. Unfailing love. His redemption overflows. He himself will redeem Israel from every kind of sin. The psalmist here in the last two verses of this chapter finally addresses the people of God and he addresses them with what may well be his testimony. He has longed for the Lord. He has placed his hope in God. He offers forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. He longs for him. And so what we've got here is a realization that he has been forgiven. And because he has, and because he has hope, he wants somebody else to have it too. Israel, hope in the Lord. This goes from me to myself and y'all. This is where it goes to. This is another element of experience. This is not an element of association. When God does something for us, then we, within our experience of his goodness, then, because we've tasted and seen that God is good, we want others to experience the same. David said in Psalm chapter 51, Restore me, and I'll teach your way to rebels. He said, Forgive me, and I'll sing of your forgiveness. It's the response of what God has done, is to help others to experience the same. Psalm chapter 107, verse 2, says, As the Lord redeems you, then speak out. Tell others that he has redeemed you from their enemies. And this is what's happening here. His experience of forgiveness of God, all the rest of everybody else that's around him, the nation of Israel, God's Old Testament people, hope in the Lord, wait on the Lord, expect the Lord, for with the Lord there is unfailing love. Now let's talk about redemption, because these two verses mention it twice, and what's repeated is important. Israel holds a special place in the heart of God. This is the people group that is chosen by God, his covenant people. They are purposed to introduce blessing to the world. But the heart of God that we learn through Israel extends far beyond one nation to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, as redemption is for all who would receive him, all, even you and even me. The way in which God would redeem Israel from every kind of sin is the same way that we are redeemed from every kind of sin. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it should be on the screen. Ephesians 1, 7 says, He, God, is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his Son and forgave our sins. Let me read that one more time. He, God, is so rich in kindness and grace. Remember that word, rich. Kindness and grace that he purchased, he redeemed us, purchased our freedom with the blood of his Son and forgave our sins. Purchase our freedom is that thought for the word redemption. Redemption means that we've been bought back by a price. God has paid the price to bring us back. Back? What do you mean back? Sin separates us from God. The cost of our sin is separation from God, leading us in a place where we need to get back. We need to be restored. And that cost being separation, God paid to cover the cost of our separation through the blood of his son, to restore a right relationship with a holy God, and that is redemption. That's what we're singing about. That's what we're reading about. That's what God has done for you out of his care. Now, verses 7 and 8, and this is the last major guy. I'll do this to show you all. I got one more, but that's something different. Verses 7 and 8 give us two descriptions of redemption. Verse 7 says this, his redemption 
overflows. You see that? His redemption overflows. That means there's plenty. That means it is overflowing, it is abundant. And, and as I'm telling you this next point, I've got a lovely assistant that's gonna come and help me to illustrate with a high budget prop, as we do here, just exactly what this redemption looks like. Now, this is my wife, Brittany. Brittany is diligently taking notes. Thanks, babe. This is my wife, Brittany, and uh, she's gonna come up and help me. We, we have an Easter egg hunt coming up in April. That will be at Tanner High School. And when we get to that Easter egg hunt at Tanner on Saturday, April the 9th, looking down here, Saturday, April the 9th, our Easter egg hunts in the past have not been so much an Easter egg hunt as they have been a gift of eggs. And what I mean by that is like there have been so many eggs on the ground that we're going to make sure that a child leaves there with not one or two, but an abundance of Easter eggs when they leave, right? And why do we do that? Because it is our desire that every child there has a great experience. So out of our desire, we will give them an abundance. Now I want to connect this and think about our relationship with the Lord. This is the, my favorite Easter egg basket that we have. Appropriate for March, right? And, and this Easter egg basket represents our life. This is our life. And God fills our life with redemption. He forgives our sin. And, and it's almost like, though, when we have a bad thought, and then when we have a bad action, or we have a bad attitude, when we get saved, we think to ourselves that God may not forgive us, but then he does. God, once again, he forgives us of our sin. The sin that when we realize it, recognize it, we thought to ourselves that I don't know if God would forgive me again. And yet, we understand the truth of the scripture, and the scripture says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But until glory, we've still got that sin nature, and sometimes we, bad action again, bad attitude again. We've said something wrong we shouldn't have said, even the prize egg that he gave us. And we find ourselves wondering if once again God would forgive us of our sins. And what does the scripture say in Psalm chapter 130? O Israel, open the Lord, for with the Lord there is unfading love, his redemption overflows. Gosh, overflows. Can somebody give testimony to that in your own life? Praise God. Amen. This is, this is what Brittany and I do together. We sit at home and we practice low-budget sermon illustrations. Good job. Yeah, you can. Thank you. Actually, I almost did Thank you, man. This is Brittany, by the way, for those of you that haven't met my wife. See, the Lord longs to deliver people from their way to sin. Just, just as we want to give every single kid there a basket full of Easter eggs, God wants to give your life redemption to the full. Why? Why would he do that? Why would he do that so abundantly? Because it's his desire. 
It's God's desire that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. So somebody in here today, this was just for you. You don't know if God would forgive you because my word, you keep messing up what God is putting together. His redemption, it overflows. So when you've been... When you begin to think to yourself that, that there's no way that God could save you, this must be all false, or you're starting to give up because once again you've crossed the line, just know this, that no, we would never give sin a pass. That's not what we're talking about today. But we must also be reminded that God's desire is enough to fill your basket and even more and more and more again. So instead of taking advantage of that, and when we get to this place where, man, God's word is so amazing and his grace is amazing and his redemption overflows. Instead of us getting to this place where we start going like this again, just treasure it, man. Treasure it. Know that God's deliverance and redemption is abounding, overflowing, and treasure it. And out of God's patience and kindness and tolerance, let there be repentance of sin, is what the Bible says. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Verse 8, finally. Verse 8 tells us God's redemption is from every kind of sin. You need to say that every day. God's redemption is from every kind of sin. The, the word used here in verse 8 means to ransom. But, y'all, this is also good. It means to sever means to sever. Look at verse 8. He himself will redeem Israel from every kind of sin. He will sever Israel from every kind of sin. What does sever mean? It means to suddenly slice and put an end to it. There's a sudden separation. We used to be separate from God in our sin. And then we became attached to that nature of sin that would lead us straight to hell. But through the blood of Jesus that is eternal and speaks for us, God in his grace severed that cord from sin and now we are free from the power and penalty of sin as we are attached to the redemption of God. That's what God has done for us when he redeems us. So you can try to hang on to that guilt and shame if you feel like you must. But through the study of God's love for his people, you learn that you have suddenly been forgiven and attached to God's spirit who leads you away from sin. Don't give up. Put your hope and your trust and your waiting and even the depths of your despair in the word of God. Amen? Amen. Let's stand to our feet. I want to invite you today, if you need to take a next step, just start walking now. We have pastors here in the front that would love to talk to you. We would love to answer any questions that you've got. Maybe today you want to join the church. That's your next step. Or you need to be baptized. Or maybe you think to yourself today, I need to talk about salvation because I want to be saved. I need to be saved. That's all you got to tell us when you walk the aisle. Just those five words. I need to be saved. And we'll help you from there. Maybe today you just need to come and pray. You want to pass right on by us. You're more than welcome to do that. You can come right by us. You can pray right here in this altar. Lord, whatever our response would be today, God, I pray that we would do so quickly without giving Satan time to get in the way of it. Lord, we need your grace, and God, we're thankful that it's there. We just pray, oh Lord, today that you would teach us, help us, lead us, and as we wait, that we would stand in your word. God, and we thank you for how your grace abounds. Thank you, Lord, for paying the price for our sin, and we love you and thank you, Lord, for loving us. 
Help us, Lord, to take faithful next steps to stay close to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This altar is open for you. Let's worship together.